Joan Esposito. Live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Joan Esposito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT 820. Hello, thank you for joining me this Wednesday, March 8th. I am so glad you are here. It is uh, it is such a pleasure to be on the air airwaves with you. Uh, real quick, want to give you a couple of updates on some aldermanic runoffs. In the 45th Ward, uh, Jim Gardner was really, really close. At one point, it seemed like he was less than a percentage, less than one full percentage point of going over and just outright winning re-election. And people thought, well, maybe the mail-in ballots will put him over the top. And they've done the opposite. They've actually taken some percentage away from him. So instead of being at like 49 point something something, he's now dropped down to 48%, making it a certainty that he will be in a runoff with Megan Mathias on April 4th. Really interesting how these uh, mail-in ballots are going. Now, in the first ward, it looked like the incumbent alder person, Daniel Laspada, was going to be in a runoff against the second highest vote-getter, Sam Royko. But in this, in this particular race, I mean, don't ever let anybody tell you that a single vote doesn't matter. In this particular race, the mail-in ballots have pushed La Spada up. Now, the Board of Elections says that in this particular ward, there are 82 ballots that are still uncounted, and that uh, the sitting alderman, Daniel La Spada, needs about a third of those to go his way to completely, entirely, and fully win his seat back. Talk about a nail-biter. Good grief. In the 29th Ward, we have the incumbent alderperson, Chris uh, Taliaferro, looked on election night like he had 51%. Again, obviously not a huge margin, but enough to have him hold his seat. And here again, with the mail-in ballots, his lead is shrinking. The Board of Elections says that they believe he is going to hang on to that seat, but his percentage now is at 50.38%. Um, The Board of Elections, though, saying that even if all of the uncounted ballots go against him, the way they're reading the numbers, he will have over 50 percent. So some real nail biters here. The Board of Elections says overall they sent out over 43,000 mail-in ballots that they have not necessarily received back just yet. If your mail-in ballot is postmarked February 28th, February 27th, February 26th, February 25th, 
when it arrives, whenever it arrives, it will be counted and added to the tally. So, um, you know, the Board of Elections doesn't certify their results until every ballot is counted. So now they're waiting to see if any more mail-in ballots are going to show up of the some 43,269 that they know they mailed out and they're not sure are necessarily coming back, at least not yet. Uh, Most likely this coming Tuesday at the latest. Well, let's say say Wednesday at the latest. uh, They will be making the announcement early mid next week as to the final results. Um, February 28th was the last day to get your mail-in ballot postmarked, and the Board of Elections usually gives it a couple of weeks just to make sure every ballot has arrived. And every ballot that arrives that has a February 28th postmark or earlier gets counted. As And as we see in some of these aldermanic races, I mean, it's really going to be a few votes here, a few votes there make all the difference. I mean, it looked like Jim Gardner with enough mail-in ballots was going to just teeter right over the edge of victory. But instead, the mail-in ballots have been going against him more than they have been supporting him. And his percentage has dropped It is uh, going to be an interesting April 4th. We are going to have some very, very interesting races to report to you that night. So please um, stick with us. We will bring you the information as we get it. Uh, You know, yesterday I read to you a really interesting commentary written by a man who has been a part of and observing the political scene in the Chicago area for (laughs) decades and decades. Don Rose is in his 90s now, and he has been involved in Chicago politics almost his entire life. He wrote a very interesting essay that talks about Paul Vallis and Brandon Johnson. He seems to think that Paul Vallis is the obvious winner, in part because Brandon Johnson has to acquire a fairly large number of votes just to catch up to the numbers Vallis got on February 28th, and then Brandon Johnson has to capture even more votes to surpass him. But in the same breath, he said that he personally is supporting Brandon Johnson. He's going to vote for Brandon Johnson. So since nobody, particularly not those involved in politics, nobody wants to throw their vote away, whether or not it's in his essay, he clearly feels that Brandon Johnson does have a path to victory. We are going to talk to him in just a couple of minutes and find out if he really feels Brandon Johnson could be the next mayor, and if so, how that would happen. What has to take place? You know, it's easy to say that we've got a far right and a far left candidate, and whoever most successfully moves to the middle is the winner. 
But there's lots of things that influence politics in Chicago. And what you put at risk, what you put at risk if you move to the middle, you put at risk alienating the people who were so passionate about your candidacy because you were to the right or you were to the left. It is a tricky path to negotiate. Um, Don Rose, I'm sure, has seen people who have been able to pull it off, and maybe he can share some of those insights with us um, in just really in just a couple of minutes. How we're going to spend uh, the rest of the day today, we are going to, after we talk to Don Rose, we are going to talk to another person who uh, is, is and has been deeply involved in democratic politics. We're going to talk to our good friend, uh, democratic lawyer Michael Dorff. Uh, he was and has been a big supporter of Mayor Lori Lightfoot, who came in third and will not be a part of the runoff on April 4th. I don't know if he is working with either of the two remaining candidates. We will find out, and we will get his thoughts on how things are going to be shaping up. Um, Also later today, we're going to be talking to our good friend Rex Hupke from USA Today. And um, Willie Wilson is uh, set, uh, has just made an endorsement in the mayor's race. He's going to join us at 4 o'clock to talk about that. But before we talk to him, I told you, April 4th, it isn't, just, it isn't just all about us. It's mostly about us, but our neighbors to the north are looking at two very different, sound familiar? Uh, two very different candidates running for the open su- seat on their Supreme Court. Democrat Janet Protasewicz. And uh, far-right candidate Daniel Kelly. And whichever person wins that seat is going to steer Wisconsin for the next 10 years. It is a 10-year seat. And in Wisconsin, where the divisions are wide, whether there is a conservative majority or a more liberal majority is going to affect voting rights, gerrymandering, a woman's right to autonomy. Remember Wisconsin, when uh, Roe v. Wade was overturned? In Wisconsin, a law passed in 1849 took effect. And it is a state that is looking at a lot of restrictions on what a woman can and cannot do. Critical, critical election. We're going to talk at 3.30 to Sarah Godlewski. You remember that name? She was in the Democratic primary to try to unseat Ron Johnson. She was bested by Mandela Barnes, who was then bested by the probably the worst senator in Congress today, Ron Johnson, in part. People say because of a lot of Illinois money that came into the race from the Uline family. 
So uh, April 4th is going to be a big day for everybody. Look, uh, let's take a break and let's uh, talk to Don Rose right after this. This is Barry Maltz with a small business radio show. And like you, I've had a lot of businesses over the last 25 years. First, I went out of business. Then I got kicked out by my two partners. Then I sold my last business and I was able to pay back the bank the $1.3 million I owed them. And funny enough, my wife tells me I got her back just about the same time. Join me Saturday mornings at 9 a.m. right here on WCPT 820, where I show you how to get your small business unstuck, grow the company you've always wanted, and finally make the money that you deserve. Because facts matter. You're listening to WCPT 820. This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. Don Rose knows where all the bodies are buried. He is a longtime Chicago political observer and uh, wrote that commentary that I referenced a little bit earlier and told you about yesterday, where he looks at the choice that Chicago is faced with and will make a decision on this coming April 4th. Don joins us now to talk about this. Hello, Don. How are you? Okay, and you? Um, I am peachy today. Uh, Just peachy. Okay, I have questions about this commentary. You analyzed the runoff election very cogently. You also said in your essay that you think that Paul Vallis is the likely winner, and yet you're going to be voting for Brandon Johnson. I can't believe you're going to throw away your vote, so you clearly feel Brandon Johnson has a path to victory. What do you see that path being? Well, he has to pull together uh, uh, the bulk of the uh, African-American community, uh, Latinos, and uh, capture um, uh, the uh, uh, votes that went around, you know, the the other votes that went to candidates and build up a little, uh, you know, a few extra voters. Uh, Well, really, though, neither Paul Vallis nor Brandon Johnson won any of the black wards. On February 28th. Well, that means they're open. The fact that he is African-American is certainly a help toward it. Those wars were carried by uh, uh, Laurie Lightfoot, and I guess some were, might have been carried uh, uh, by Willie Wilson. But that uh, um, is a substantial voting population. It's, uh, you know, more than a third of the vote in Chicago. Um it's it's an uphill battle to do this when you are roughly uh, 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 twenty five votes behind uh, twenty uh, fifty I'm sorry fifteen uh, percent uh, uh, ahead of uh, your nearest competitor um, it's that that's it's not insurmountable it's a very difficult. Uh, uh, um, number to surmount you know usually you figure if you're within 10 percent you might have a reasonable chance to overcome but when you get above 10 percent um you're not quite out of sight but it's very difficult nevertheless i'm voting for uh johnson because his values are closer to mine how do you said you know they need to win over the black vote in chicago if you were advising either of these campaigns, how would you tell them to do that? How to approach that? 
I would uh, work very, very hard to to uh, uh, deal with the issue uh, uh, of, of crime, of course, and tie it more closely to uh, the police issue, which is Brandon is doing, uh, and it's one that uh, uh, Valis is trying to hint at, but he never quite uh, says it because he does not acknowledge uh, <clears throat> the bad policing issues to uh, to crime. We need to get, you know, uh, it's been said over and over again, we need the black community to come forth um, uh, with more information, and they don't do it because they don't trust the police. So you've got to, to work on that issue uh, and uh, separate out uh, the need for good policing and more uh, respectful police in dealing with crime in Chicago. You know, um, it has been argued exactly what you just said, that police are having a tough time solving crimes in certain neighborhoods because the people who are actually there and see everything happen don't want to talk to them. Uh, they don't trust the police. Uh, they don't, you know, because we don't really have a lot of community policing, they don't know the police. But also the argument has been made that um, they're also really afraid of retribution from the bad actors in their neighborhoods, that the police, that if we had maybe a better, a better uh, utilized witness protection program, they would feel safe enough. But there was at least one instance where somebody came forward, gave the police information, and then was later killed by the, I believe it was a gang member who they basically ratted on. What about what about it utilizing ways to make communities feel that they will be protected, whether or not they trust the or know the name of the cop they're talking to? Well, that that's certainly a part of the equation. Uh, you have to be able to protect people and find ways uh, that uh, uh, protect you from uh, uh, being exposed as the rat. Uh, a witness protection program is uh, an, uh, an extreme end of that. It might be useful, uh, but I think uh, um, people have to uh, uh, find a way to tell their story uh, that makes them more trustful of the police and get some police protection. You identify both these candidates, rightly so, as um, on different sides of the political spectrum. And, you know, the the real facile answer is, oh, whoever moves to the middle will gather the vast majority of the votes. But isn't there a danger if Brandon moves to the middle, he might be seen as abandoning the progressive bona fides that got him where he is? And that if well, Frank thinks the same thing for Paul... The idea of moving to the middle is uh, uh, not quite in my lexicon. It's it's the one who lays out a program that will appeal more broadly, that will get the middle vote. Now, right now, uh, Brandon, because of some of his prior statements, um, has to make up a lot of space there. He doesn't have to change his positions. That would look... Uh, look look terrible, but he's got to expand on his views. Right now, Vallis is closer to where uh, that middle vote is. What do you mean by he has to expand on his views? Give me an example, Don. 
Well, one is when he talks about uh, um, uh, police protection and uh, uh, bringing in uh, uh, social workers and others to help in uh, uh, um, cases of domestic violence. I think he has to do a better job of explaining that. Uh, it's been long. It's been a long um, sociological answer that you know sophisticated people like you and me and your listeners uh, have heard about uh, but has never been made clear and uh, uh, it's something that people can understand uh, if it's put to them right and it has not been um, expanded as it should yet um, the business community seems to be very worried about Brandon Johnson because of the taxes that he has already said that he is going to bring back, particularly the idea of a, of a head tax. Since he's taken the stand and that's what he wants to do and he's announced it very publicly, what can he do to win over the business community if uh, they already don't like what they're hearing from him and when it comes to taxes? Well, that's the conundrum. That's that's why he is behind where he is, and that's why the business community is pouring money into uh, into Vallis. For the regular person, uh, I would uh, focus more on uh, uh, rather than the head tax or something which has been tried and uh, hasn't uh, uh, been very well received, and he has to move to something uh, more like uh, a millionaire's tax. You know, whether, whether, <laughs> call it that. You know, on very, very high-income um, uh, uh, workers in the city. Uh, but that tax issue is exactly why he's right now behind the eight ball. Hmm. So he's, but he's in a tough spot because I mean he's doubled down on this is who I am and this is what I want, but at the same token, you know, it, it would seem to me that somebody who wants to be mayor of the entire city would really want to have support of the business community um, behind them. He can't back off from the statements he's made. I know, I, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you know his idea of taxing the rich as has been described to me is taxing people who make over a hundred thousand dollars a year which uh, in that net you know if you're a a teacher and you work overtime if you're a firefighter and a cop who and who works full time with overtime that puts you in that bracket we don't tend to think of those as taxing the rich i have not heard the hundred thousand dollar explanation that you just gave me if he did it's a stinker. Of course, you're right about that. I'm talking about a um, uh, seriously attacking the rich, the $500,000 earner, not the $100,000 earner. And if uh, I, I, I do not remember hearing it, maybe my oversight, uh, him mentioning a figure uh, that low. And if, if if he did mention it and it gets thrown back up to him, um, it's a loser. Are you going to be uh, working for uh, Mr. Johnson? No, I am uh, not going to be on the ground in this campaign. I'll be observing it. I was giving uh, Chewy some advice from uh, uh, from my from my sofa, uh, <laughs> but I uh, uh, don't have a relationship. 
relationship to uh, uh, to, the, to that group. I've had some differences with the teachers' union uh, in the past, and I've had some agreements with them. So uh, <clears throat> I, I will not be um, brought into their circle as any kind of an advisor. Well, Don, I appreciate the fact that you will come on the radio and advise us. So hopefully you'll keep doing that in the future. And I really thank you for joining us today. Always glad to. Good to hear from you. We are going to take a break. We are going to continue a political discussion right after this. Stay on top of the latest news in and around Chicago with Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, every weekday afternoon from 2 to 5 p.m. on WCPT 820. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT Willow Springs, is powered by ComEd. See how ComEd is preparing for a clean energy future at comed.com slash clean energy. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. One of the other people who has been a longtime Chicago political consultant, he, uh, for the last several years, has been working very closely with our mayor, Lori Lightfoot, is Michael Dorf. We've been talking to Michael literally since just about the first day I ever started on this show, some four years ago. And uh, Michael always has some really interesting insights. Michael, thank you so much for being here today. Well, thank you, Jonah. You know, calling Don Rose is always a hard job. <laughs> you tell me about it. I mean, good God. I mean, what is it, 50 years he's been or more that he's been involved in um, politics and political campaigns. Uh, speaking of which, I know that you have been very involved in supporting the candidacy and then the tenure of our mayor, Lori Lightfoot. Um, are you going to be working for another mayoral candidate going forward, or what's uh, what's in your future? Uh, no, no, the, the 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 wounds are a little still uh, still raw from uh, from last mm-hmm. Tuesday night, and uh, and as, as, as you would imagine, uh, we we had pretty uh, pretty sick uh, opposition research. Uh, books on on both of these candidates, and uh, uh, you know they're, they're, they are both flawed candidates. One one of them is going to become mayor of Chicago, and we all got to get behind that person. But uh, they, they they both have some uh, some real problems. Well, the speculation has been that even though uh, let's see, Rod Sawyer has endorsed and Willie Wilson endorsed today, and um, that um, that Mayor Lightfoot will not be endorsing. Either of the candidates, in part, uh, well, the, the 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 common description is she hates them, so she won't be endorsing either of them. Uh, what do you think is going to happen? Because you know, you know, they always say in politics, you don't have any friends, you don't have any enemies, you simply have aligned interests. Yeah, I I, I go with the Harry Truman's. If, if you know, if you want a friend in politics, get a dog. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. I, I, um, I, I have had several conversations with the mayor since last Tuesday. Um, we have not talked about um, whether she's going to endorse anybody or not endorse anybody. Uh, I think right now she's just going to keep uh, her head down, do her job till May fifteenth. Uh, mm-hmm. 
And you know, we'll, we'll, we'll see what happens. It's, you know, her, she's got a, a pile of votes, which I think uh, both candidates would like to get. You are very uh, close with Lori Lightfoot. Do you think that she will that she has any desire to continue on in politics? Or do you think the siren song, the siren call of the private sector is going to woo her back? So I, I, I don't want to talk specifically about her, but, uh, but just in terms of all the politicians I've, I've, I've worked with over the years, um, when you get that bug, it is very hard to, to, to let it go. And as we can as we can tell from Paul Vallis, who, you know, um, lost for uh governor, lost for lieutenant governor, lost for mayor, but um, and now uh, this might be his shot. Uh, so I, I uh, there, there are many more chapters that Lori Lightfoot has, and whether they're in politics or not, I'm not sure, but you know, once you get a taste for it, it's, it's hard to let it go. Well, um, it took a while, but certainly Rahm Emanuel seems to have landed on his feet. <laughs> yeah, yeah, both, both uh, politically and certainly financially. Uh, and uh, he's, you know, he's 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 doing very well out there out, out there in in Japan. And uh, um, you know, if, if he saw the opportunity, he might come back as well. Well, you know, Michael, uh, the joke was that President Biden made Rahm Emanuel the ambassador to Japan because it was so far away; it was as far away as he could get him. <laughs> I, I can appreciate there's a little nugget of truth in that joke. <laughs> but, you know, in all, um, in many respects, it, it, even though people in Chicago were kind of like, huh, what? Uh, I could see where on the international stage, it was an appointment that made a lot of sense. I mean, clearly, as President Obama's chief of staff, Rahm Emanuel was somebody that Joe Biden got to know really well. And um, and because he was President Obama's chief of staff and had uh, had really a very, very important role over and above the important role of being mayor of the city of Chicago, that the Japanese like that. They want to feel that they're the ambassador from the United States is somebody who's really important you know, not just uh, a place to stick somebody who was a big campaign donor or um, or just to promote a career politician. But it's sort of a it was as I understood it, it, the Japanese were very thrilled to get him. And they felt that it was a real compliment that somebody who had been in the uh, West Wing was deemed the person who uh, would best serve Japan. So. It is as as shocking as it was here in Chicago. I could see where on the international stage that particular appointment made a lot of sense. So oh, I think that, that that's absolutely right. It, it, the um, uh, that has the uh, Japan has has always been one of those places where the, the president has tried to send somebody who. Uh, Really has the respect of the White House and someone who um, who can come back, uh, who, who knows that his, his uh, telephone calls uh, are, mm-hmm. are get returned by, yep. by the president. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's uh, let's uh, take a look at the two people we have in this in this runoff. We have uh, Brandon Johnson, who has certainly captured the hearts 
of progressives uh, saying all the right things. And uh, then we have Paul Vallis, who clearly uh, has captured the hearts of the business community and and perhaps the law and order faction. They are so very different. Neither of them won 50% plus one on February 28th. So talk about each candidate and what they have to do to get that 50% plus one on April 4th. Well, Brandon is incredibly charismatic. I mean, it's, um, it's fun to listen to him, listen to him speak. He, he looks like, like he's enjoying himself. He looks like somebody who really can, uh, can, can, can rally a crowd. Uh, his, his, uh, his problems are that he really has never run anything. Uh, and he has some wonderful programs. I, I went on uh, his, his website, and he has some very, very specific plans uh, for everything. I and mean, even, even, he's even got a, a, a two-page arts policy. I and mean, it's all laid out very, very well, and, and he wants to do a lot of stuff. But as, as you pointed out before, the question is, how is he ever going to pay for it? And, and he talks about, well, you know, we're going to take care of um, uh, waste, fraud, and abuse, which is what every politician says when they say they're not going to raise taxes. They're going to find all the inefficiencies. But he, he can't find that. And uh, he's, um, besides even the, the income tax we were discussing before, uh, he's definitely said he wants a head tax. He wants a mansion tax. Uh, he wants to increase the hotel tax, which is already one of the highest in the country. And he wants to do a securities and speculation tax. And, and he says he's not going to raise property taxes. And uh, I don't think these things are going to fly. I, I think it's going to be very hard for him to, uh, to to get all of these other taxes in order to pay for all, all the programs that, that, he, that he wants to pay uh, pay for. Um, on the other hand, you've got, you've got Vallis. And uh, I don't find Vallis particularly charismatic. Uh, but he certainly is the policy wonk, and he was budget director for the city of Chicago. So uh, he certainly knows where every line item is. But uh, certainly the, the the rap on him is that while he may understand budgets, he's never been able to make very good decisions with them. And when you look at his his career path, he starts with Chicago in an enormous school system. He then goes to Philadelphia, slightly smaller one. He then goes to the New Orleans school system, a smaller one, and finally ends up running the Bridgeport, Connecticut school system. And so, you know, what is the lesson that we get uh, instead of somebody going from bigger job to bigger job to bigger job? Uh, he's gone down, down, down. Uh, he's got his website uh, talks about policy, but not with the specificity of um, of Brandon's, and he's got a really sort of interesting uh, disclaimer on his website. He says um, he will not increase property taxes to address the pension crisis. And I, I think you know certainly uh, anybody who reads it like that says, well, that's that's a big loophole. So what what are you going to raise the property taxes for? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. You know, <clears throat> It, it, it's such a question about, you know, we talked about earlier about the, the, the dichotomy between the two. And to some extent, there, there's some real truth in that. Um, Paul Vallis has stayed really on message about crime and safety. 
And, you know, there's, uh, is he going to be able to move up and get those uh, those votes along the, the lakefront and the north side and then and, uh, some of the areas where um, this is the first time they're feeling the same fear of crime that people on the south and the west side have had to live with for so many years. There's, there's an old statement that um, a conservative is a, a liberal who got mugged. And <laughs> if, if these people you know, who, who were the lakefront liberals uh, and the progressives who, who frankly, uh, left Lori during this, this past election, but if, if they are starting to suddenly wonder whether they can walk their dogs at night and whether they uh, can have to worry about having their cars hijacked, things like that, uh, will those people stay with, with Brandon, the progressive, or will they go to the person who's saying law and order? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, in, um, oh, we probably should take a break. When we come back, uh, uh, part of the reason I was chatting with Don Rose is because of this essay that he wrote, this commentary that he wrote. And in that, he uh, talks about why he thinks Chewy Garcia lost. And one of the mistakes that he thinks Chewy made was waiting too long to um, defend himself against the Lori Lightfoot attack ads. And that uh, by the time he reacted, he'd kind of like already lost um, momentum. I'm going to talk to Michael Dorff, a Democratic lawyer consultant, more about that when we come right back after this. Take Jonas Pazito, live, local, and progressive, with you on the go by using the TuneIn app on your phone. Just search for WCPT 820. WCPT 820, Chicago's progressive talk, where facts matter. Don't turn that dial. A dangerous mistake to make. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, returns right now on WCPT 820. I'm speaking with Democratic lawyer Michael Dorff. He has been in the Lori Lightfoot camp for a very long time. He is still there, not not moving anytime soon. In the commentary that Don Rose published, he talked about the fact that while maybe uh, Lori wasn't able to garner enough votes to put her in the runoff, she was, through her ads, at least in a position to sort of knock Chewy Garcia, Congressman Jesus Chewy Garcia, off of the top spot. Uh, there were attack ads linking him to Sam Bankman-Fried, the crypto crook, and um in linking him with um, indicted former Speaker Mike Madigan. And here's what Don Rose writes. Garcia's campaign ignored the attacks until it was too late, making the same strategic error John Kerry did in the 2004 presidential race, failing to respond to the so-called swift boat attacks on his integrity and military heroism. Um, and he said, as John, as Garcia lost his lead and started a downward slide, that's when Brandon Johnson began his rise from relative obscurity to major contender. As somebody who has been up close and personal in a lot of campaigns, do you think that was a, a, a mistake that Chewy Garcia all around, uh, you know, admittedly, he's like, I'm a nice guy. I don't want to get in the mud. I don't want to be down and dirty. 
did he wait too long and and to respond to criticisms of him? Yeah, I, I think there's a, there's a lot of truth in that. Chewy made a bunch of mistakes. Um, I think he was thinking he was Harold Washington, and uh, Harold Washington was 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 sitting congressman, uh, and people came to him and said, "Run for mayor," and he said, "I'll run for mayor if you show me." Two things. Show me the money that you're going to be able to provide to me and show me uh, the, the registration, how many more voters you're going to, you're going to bring in. And, and he got that evidence and, and he jumped in. Chewy, uh, I, I think, uh, uh, was expecting money from places that, that, that didn't show up. Uh, didn't show up or were already committed to other candidates because he was late getting into the fray? I think he was expecting money from JB. Uh, he, um, you know, this, and this is this is truly inside baseball stuff. But um, Chewy uh, supported JB's um, candidate for chair of the Democratic Party over Robin Kelly, who was the the sitting chair. Mm-hmm. And this, and I, and I have this from from many people, so I believe it is true. Chewy had promised Robin's people that, that he was voting for Robin, and and then uh, and then the day the next day he, he changed and, and, and voted for JB's candidate. Chewy then, in front of a group of, of, of supporters, um, where they were saying they were asking him, "Where are you going to get the money to run?" He said, "Well, JB owes me a favor for the way I voted." at the Democratic Party chair. Mm. I I, I really think he was was expecting that that's where the money was going to come from. Uh, Why didn't it? uh, uh, Because J.B., I believe, every decision he makes from now till 2024 is is through a lens of, does this help me or hurt me if I run for president? Mm. And I think he, he, he decided... Uh, I don't want to get involved in a, uh, a nine-person mayoral election. Uh, you know, he still hasn't decided whether he can get involved in a two-person mayoral election. But uh, the only thing he's thinking about right now is, does it help me run for president? He has been described, J.B. Pritzker, uh, by, I think it was the New York Times, as the SOS candidate. Like, you know, if uh, <clears throat> if something at the last minute happens to Biden to either knock him out or or have him decide not to run again, that a J.B. sort of, while well, he doesn't want to actively pursue it, wants to be there as the go-to guy uh, if he's needed. Would you say that's accurate? <laughs> um, I, 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 um, I think that is accurate. I, I think he's, uh, he, is in wait- he is in waiting. He's been making those speeches in states that hold uh, early primaries. Uh, he, he certainly can self-fund the campaign uh, if, if, he, if he wants to. Uh, yeah, he's, uh, he's hand-rested and ready, as they, uh, they used to say. Hmm. So would, you, you know, I realize it's a little bit of insider baseball. I mean, you know these things. Chewy never said anything publicly uh, about wanting JB's support, expecting JB's support, being disappointed that JB wasn't getting behind him. Just so, do you think going forward there's some ill will there? Oh, I, I don't know. I, I think both both of them are very transactional politicians, uh, mm-hmm. and uh, this is 
I, I don't think either of them is going to take it to, 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 to personally. I think you're right that the, uh, Lori's campaign was able to um, uh, describe Chewy really, really early, and Chewy didn't, didn't fight back on it. Uh, it. It may have worked too well, because Chewy came in that race as, as the front runner. Everybody said, oh, you know, he is, he is, he's the one. Uh, he's done it before. He, everybody likes him. And uh, he, he, he was able to be characterized uh, by the Madigan, by the cryptocurrency stuff. Uh, and uh, it may have worked too well. I think there was some feeling in the life of the campaign that Chewy and Brandon would, would end up uh, splitting the progressive vote. And uh, instead, Chewy really, really underperformed. Uh, if, if, if they had split the vote, I think Lori would have been in the runoff. Hmm. I thought this myself, um, and then I thought, well, you know, maybe it's just me. And then I started reading what some other people had written. I was really surprised that Chewy Garcia ran what seemed to me to be a really dispassionate sort of lackluster campaign and I thought, well, you know, Joan, maybe, you know, he knows that behind the scenes he's got all these different things lined up. And so, you know, um, but then I was reading Eric Zorn, who actually um, was going to vote for Chewy Garcia, but said, you know, that he felt that it had been a really dull, a mealy mouthed sort of um campaign but the only reason that he was voting for Garcia was cuz he felt he was the best person to go up against Vallis and he didn't want Vallis to win what what happened with who was advising Chewy Garcia i mean even when we did our mayoral forum on January 26th you know um i'm up there on the stage you know we've got Lori Lightfoot who when she can't go after the other candidates is telling me all the things that she wants to be saying on mic. You know, Paul Vallis is there. Brandon Johnson is is making a statement. And when it came to Chewy, you know, he was just he was very soft spoken and he was very quiet. And I thought to myself, whoa, look to your right and look to your left. And we took a break. We took a short commercial break. And one of his advisors must have said something to him, because when we came back, he was like a different candidate. He was like Chewy on fire. He was like Chewy, who was really passionate. And it wasn't the Chewy that had been on stage just a few minutes before. Do you think his normally sort of um, more quiet personality worked against him? Oh, absolutely. And there, there, there was a, um, I don't want to say arrogance, but, but that, that last series of ads that he did, that, that final ad that they kept playing and playing was, you know, people were saying lies about me, but you know me, I'm Chewy. And there are a lot of people who don't know him <laughs> being Chewy. And, and he, he, he never made the case about mm-hmm. Really, what what he would be able to do, and it, it, it was a very laid back campaign, and that's it, it, it surprised me. Yeah, um, how important are endorsements? I mean, uh, Don Rose and I were talking about um, neither Brandon Johnson nor Paul Vallis won any of the black wards. That's a vote that they both really need going forward. 
And I, you know, from what I'm observing from the outside, it seems like the Vallis campaign is trying to win over that vote with endorsements. You know, Rod Sawyer has endorsed him uh, earlier today. Willie Wilson endorsed him previously. Uh, the former secretary of state, Jesse White, endorsed him. Is our endorsements important? What function do they have in a campaign? It, it depends how they use them. Uh, you know, I uh, one of my the people I, I've worked for for many years is Alexi Janulius, and Jesse White endorsed Anna Valencia against Alexi in the primary, um, and that was considered a, a, a major win for, for Anna. But she didn't use it with any. She didn't use it, and we'll we'll see if uh, I, I think Ballas is, is trying very hard to to inoculate himself. And saying, you know, I, uh, uh, African-Americans do support me because there is this feeling uh, that it's the Southwest and the, and the uh, Northwest side whites who, who is who are his base. And uh, and that uh, he doesn't care about uh, the African-American community. So uh, and he jumped immediately after that Jesse White endorsement and suddenly he was running broadcasts and cable TV with Jesse's just just Jesse on the screen saying this guy is OK. So I, I think he's using that very well. He'll, he'll probably do the same with, uh, with the Willie Wilson and, and the Rod Sawyers, who's saying, you know, uh, I am the mayor. I am going to be the mayor for, for all the people. Um, but as, as we found out you know, with Anna Valencia, you know, look, just that endorsement by itself doesn't do anything. The mm-hmm. endorsement that Brandon has got with all the unions, now, now that's a question of are they going to get their, 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 their boots on the ground, and that really may make a difference. Yeah. Michael, it is always a pleasure to talk to you. Um, I would like to check in with you in a few weeks uh, before we go to the uh, April 4th election. So to see how the campaigns have evolved over the next two weeks. Uh, I love talking to you. Thank you for being here. Well, same here. It's always a pleasure. Thank you. We're going to take a break for news. We're going to be back with more right after this. Remember when you get to work to hop over to WCPT820.com or the TuneIn Radio app and stream The Stephanie Miller Show weekdays 8 to 11 a.m. on Chicago's Progressive Talk, where facts matter. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. The reason that I listen to you from the infamous other side, you will call a spade a spade, and if it's indefensible, you will not defend it. And you know what? I can respect that. A WCPT 820. Here at WCPT, we are big union supporters, and we do a regular segment that we call Union Strong. And we talk to people who are either leading a union, they're involved with a union, they support a union. We have uh, somebody new to introduce you to today. Ron Whittingham is here. He is the co-chief executive officer of Investment Executive Megant Financial. Now, on the top of it, that does not sound like a roofer's local or... um um, or any of the other people, uh, sheet metal workers that we have talked to. But Ron is very, very involved with the unions. Ron, welcome. Welcome to WCPT. Hey, Joan. Uh, thanks to be here. Uh, thank you very much. It's great to be here. Okay. Explain to our listeners about Megan Financial. Yeah. Um, so uh, we're a unique 
uh, financial planning firm. We're unique in the fact that we uh, educate the union participants on all of their benefits. And at the end of the day, in retirement, we help them uh, you know, invest their money and uh, throughout their careers. What unions do you work with? You know, we work with the majority of the unions. It's probably easier to talk about the unions we don't work with. <laughs> Uh, we, we work with uh, Local 134 we've been with for forever since uh, the mid-90s. Uh, we work with uh, Local 150 operators. We work with the Carpenters District Council, Laborers District Council, Local 399 Stationary Engineers, the Sprinkler Fitters, the Tuck Pointers, Tile Setters, Bricklayers, Elevators, Sheet Metal Workers, so Roofers. We work with uh, We work with the majority of the unions, and again, we're unique in the fact that we educate the participants on when to take pensions, when they're eligible for pensions, um, how to protect their spouses if they, when they retire, the taxation on their benefits, uh, when to take Social Security, if that's in the game, uh, if they have retiree medical, how that kind of works and how that integrates with Medicare. But it's a, it's a great job. We, uh, we, we love helping our folks. I don't suppose you work with SAG-AFTRA, do you? You know, not yet. <laughs> not yet. Well, that's too bad because we we could use you. Yeah, you know, it's um, Joan. Joan it's it's crazy when you when you talk to union participants that they really, it, you know, the the benefits for the unions are their best kept secret, and uh, not a lot of the participants know what their benefits actually are. You know, so they're going to work every day. They're working their their job and. And these, these benefits, these pensions, these uh, retirement benefits, these health care benefits are all kind of done for them by the union trustees. And uh, it boggles my mind when, when you sit with somebody a few years from retirement, they just don't have a, a handle on what those benefits really mean. So we try to do our best to pound the drum and make sure they understand them. Well, I'm in, I'm in that same boat. You know, I, I know, Ron, how to do my job. I, you know, I know how to run my house. I know, you know, when something breaks, how to get it fixed. But your world, I mean, I've been a part of SAG after virtually my entire adult life. But if you ask me to explain our pension, you know, when you can get it, maybe what, at what point you should um, jump in or how late you should hang on or what are some of the other benefits, I don't know. I mean, it's not for, you know, a lack of, of, I mean, at least I know the people who do know in my union. And when I have a question, I can call the pension people and I can say, you know, what about this? But um, it's it's like a, your world is such a strange world for most of us. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I think the same way about construction. So, I mean, you don't want to be <laughs> or building anything, so... Uh, but I, I get it. I mean, we all kind of do our own thing in this world. And, and, and again, I, you know, I mentioned earlier that the, the benefits are, are the best kept secret. You know, they do such a fantastic job at building these benefits. And, you know, the, the people that go to work every day, that's all they do, just like you mentioned. Mm-hmm. And they go to work, they, they do their job, then all of a sudden, you know, it's there, we're all older. And, and you know, it's those, those benefits are there. And it's, a, it's yeah. a great thing. But I think it's really important to understand what those benefits are, because as you make decisions and go through life, you know, maybe you want to invest some money, maybe you inherit some money, maybe you do something like that. You want to you want to do that as efficiently as you can. So you really want to understand what those benefits are. Uh-huh. 
And isn't it different for every union? You know, it is. I mean, you know, every pension is different. Uh, There's different start dates. There's different reductions for spousal benefits. Every union has maybe a different copay for retiree medical. So they're all built differently. Um, But at the same time, you know, we study them. And and the way we we do things, Joan, is we we go to these different unions uh, and and we go to their union halls and, and maybe it's a a weekday night. We last night we were at IBW Local Nine. Uh, this past Saturday we were at IBW Local One Thirty Four, and we put on a retirement seminar. and And all we do is we talk about the specific benefits for that union. Again, here's what your defined benefit plans are. Here's what your four hundred one k is. Here's what uh, your social security should be. Here's what um, you know your retiree medical benefits are. And and after the seminar, advisors actually go to the people's homes and they sit there and create a plan uh, based upon their work history and, and show them what their benefits are and the taxation of those benefits and what their income is going to be and, and, and create a plan for retirement. Well, that's I think you just you just went to the place that I was going to talk to you about next. You know, we think of this as something that you start thinking seriously about maybe, you know, when you turn 50 or 55 or 60. But it it would seem to me to really approach pension and retirement smart. You should start having a plan as soon as you're involved in the union. You know, I don't think it would be too early to have a plan like this in your in your 20s. I mean, isn't it kind of if you just start thinking about this stuff at 63, is, is that a little late in the game? Well, I mean, the, the, the beautiful thing about, about these unions is, you know, the, the participants are actually accruing and building retirement benefits from the first day on their job. You know, when they're in apprenticeship school and when they become journeymen, they're actually, um, you know, getting their hourly wage and every hour that they work, they get money put into these plans. So if you decide to wait to 63, those pensions will be there for you. So from from my perspective, from a planning perspective, it's really all done for you. So all all we're there to do is educate you on what those benefits are. And, you know, if you decide that you want to start early on, maybe you can do something, you know, outside of of those benefits to enhance your retirement, and maybe give you some different options so you can maybe retire a little bit early. And did I hear you correctly when we started this discussion that you also know stuff about, like, Social Security? Uh, yeah, yeah, that's that's what we do. And, and you know, the, the crazy thing about Social Security is, is, you know, for all of us who don't have pensions, which is me and probably the vast majority of people who are listening, uh, Social Security is our only guaranteed benefit. And so you really do have to know, you know, when it's available. And, and to be honest with you, with all the, the different talks nowadays, who knows, you know, if it's going to be there in the, the, the same way it's there for, for the people retiring now. I and think, and I'm supposed to go broke the year I get to take it. So <laughs> they won't let that happen. I promise. No. I promise they won't let that happen. But, you know, this stuff is incredibly complex. I know that when I was uh, getting to be the age where I had to make some decisions about Medicare, I asked a friend of mine who was a few years older than me, and she ran o- went over to the shelf 
she grabbed this book that was like an inch thick and she tossed it in my lap and she goes, there, read that. And I was like, oh, my God, you've got to be kidding me. You know, I'm no lawyer. I, you know, somebody expects to, it's it's like you can't wade through these systems without some help. Somebody like you who uh, knows what all the words mean and can ex- can explain them. Uh, Ron, before you respond to that, we need to take a quick break. I'm talking to Ron Whittingham. He's our newest Union Strong sponsor. He's co-chief executive officer of investment executive Megan Financial. We'll be back after this. Need a new social media account to follow for progressive politics? WCPT 820 is your best source for both progressive politics and programming. Give us a like on Facebook and a follow on both Twitter and Instagram. The Devil's Advocates. For those who would, will flip around and find something, hell, what, want to be challenged, hear a different idea other than what right-wing uh, talk radio is giving you, there's a huge opportunity for the Devil's Advocates for progressive talk, whatever, the truth, uh, because everyone, most people want the truth. And sometimes the truth hurts, but then you get over it. Then it's just normal. The Devil's Advocates, weeknights at 7 on WCPT 820, Chicago's progressive talk. This is WCPT 820, where facts matter. This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. I am joined by Ron Whittingham. He is the co-chief executive officer uh, of investment executive Megan Financial. They're part of our Union Strong program, and you might be thinking, okay, um, you usually talk to people who are in the trade unions. Why are you talking to somebody from the financial world? It's because Ron's company works with unions of all sorts to make sure that they understand their pension ins and outs, that they understand when they should retire, that they understand how to protect their family should something happen to them. And uh, he joins us now. It's his, the, his company is part of our new Union Strong effort going forward. Uh, Ron, talk about why union members are unique and their particular planning process. Uh, yeah, thanks, Joan. We uh, again, I, we kind of, I kind of brushed on this right before the break, so I'm a little bit ahead of you. But <laughs> what the the, un, the union participants. I, again, I keep I keep saying this that the that the union benefits are the best kept secret, which is the case. I mean, from from day one, these union participants are earning money towards retirement. Let, let's just say the the average I don't know union person is is making fifty dollars an hour on their on their check. We'll just use that as an example. On average, they're putting another twenty five to thirty dollars an hour away for retirement from day one. So you think about that, and as a percentage of their total income, they're putting a giant amount away for retirement, which is why they have these benefits, which is why you know, they can retire early, which is why they can retire prior to, to Medicare kicking in, like you mentioned earlier. Um, and, and again, the, the, the union participants don't have the choice. It's, it's done for them. They can't decide to put the money on the check. Uh, but these benefits that are built are, are, are tremendous. And, and like you mentioned before, just like Medicare, they can be complicating. And, and, and they're all different. When, when can I retire? How do I maximize these benefits? 
And, and once I turn them all on, you know, how do I protect my family? Do I take a spousal benefit uh, to protect my spouse in the event that I predecease her? You know, what are my life insurance benefits? How do I protect my kids? Um, and then when, you know, we end up becoming advocates for these participants so they get all these benefits that they have coming to them. And, and when the participants do pass away, we're there to pick up the pieces and help the widow. And, you know, if that were to happen, the pension stopped. And, and we, you know, start them up again and explain everything to her and, and make sure that she has everything coming to them. Uh, so the, the fact that they're unique is, is that these things are done for them and they don't have to, to do them on their own. They don't have to set, you know, 15 to 20% in their 401k plan. All, this, all, these, all these benefits are built for them. Well, when somebody comes to you and says, okay, Ron, when can I retire? What are the questions you ask them to be able to give them an answer? You know, the, the first thing is going to be, okay, you know, which union you belong to. And we'll, we'll, the, the biggest key is, is, is medical benefits. So if, if you have the ability to have some sort of medical benefit prior to Medicare, that's always the first question. And, and, and Joan, these jobs that these people have are tough. I mean, you're outside when it's cold. You're outside when it's hot. And, and, you know, they're, they're not easy jobs and they can, they can beat you up. So it, it's hard to, to, you know, keep your body in shape until you're and do these jobs until you're 65 years old. So, and that's the reason a lot of them have these medical benefits. So that the first thing would be the medical benefits. The second question we do, we would ask is what you need to live on. And, you know, you know, as far as, you know, what's your, what's your cost of living, you know, how do you want to live? Do you want to go on vacation? You know, that, that type of thing to make sure that the income matches the expense side. Mm-hmm. Is it generally true? I mean, this sounds obvious, but maybe it isn't that the the longer you work, the larger your pension benefit will be. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that's certainly the case. Um, I, you know, I met with an electrician uh, last Friday who has his, he's been an electrician for over fifty years. But but then the question is is you know you have you build this benefit, you know how long are you going to be around to? to, you know, enjoy it. You know, I, I always joke that, that, you know, I chop up retirement into three phases. It sounds kind of corny, but the first third is the go-go years. That's when you go take vacations. That's when you go to Europe. That's when you take the family and the grandkids to Disney. You know, the middle part of that, um, the middle third is the slow-go years. And that's, you know, maybe, maybe you don't go to Europe. Maybe you go to Florida or Arizona. And then the last phase, as we, as we all get older, is the no-go years. That's when you, you don't really go anywhere and you don't really need that extra money. So my whole thing is, is if you if you can retire, and I, and I agree with you that the longer you work, the more money you'll have. But at some point in time, you know, you have to worry about the quality of your life and how much you can enjoy it, and you can't take it with you. Well, yeah, that's uh, that's kind of what you have to figure out. Um, you know, let's see, when am I going to get sick? Is it going to be an acute illness? Is it going to be a chronic illness? You know, I mean, it's really, um, you know, it's it's really rolling the dice, it seems like. Yeah, I'd agree. So my, my opinion or my advice would always be to retire as early as you can afford to. Tell me about uh, some of your success stories. Um, yeah, so I, you know, I have one one real good one. It's uh, it's an electrician I met back, geez, probably been about ten years now, and I met with him and his brother. And uh, the one person I met at one of our seminars, the other brother really didn't know about us. 
so I sat with both of them, you know, helped the electrician that we met that went through our system. And then I looked over to the other brother and, and, and he, you know, I just asked him, I said, you know, what are you, what are you living on? And, and, and he mentioned to me that he was, he was awarded social security disability 10 years ago. And he, he's being forced to live with his son in, in Tennessee because he can't live on his own. And because all he has is a social security benefit. And, and I actually found out, I went, I went, I went back to the office uh, after our meeting and, and, you know, found out in fact that this person actually had probably another $2,000 a month uh, coming to him that he was unaware of. Uh, and, you know, one of the, one of the pensions went all the way back to 10 years and gave him a big retroactive check. Um, one of them did wow. on, on a go forward. He, he, he's able to, um, you know, live, live on his own. He ended up buying a house in Mundelein. And so that, that's probably the one that sticks out most, but to be honest with you, Joan, there's, there's, you know, so many success stories, uh, you know, with, you know, happy retired people from these trades. And, and, and again, I don't, I don't, we really don't have anything to do with that. It's built for them and, and the, which the unions do. So the, I, I think the unions create the success stories. All we're really here to do is, is, you know, show the participants what they have coming and, and become an advocate for them to make sure that they maximize those benefits and, and, you know, make sure they get them all. What do you tell people about the stock market? Is that generally a part of a pension plan? Is it unimportant? No, it, it, I mean, it is very important, but to be honest, it's probably not as important um, for them as it is for the rest of us uh, because they have these defined benefit plans that, that give them a guaranteed income for their lives. So regardless of the market going up and down, uh, they, their, their income doesn't change. Every month they have a deposit. It's the same amount of money, minimally, and, and, it, and it doesn't change with, you know, the stock market down 500 points yesterday and whatever it's doing today. So that's, that's, a, that's a great thing. Now, they all do have, like, 401K, what we know is a 401K plan. They, they refer to it as a defined contribution plan. Uh, so they have, they have skin in the game with, with, with the market, and they have a lot of money in these things, and they go up and they go down based upon what the markets do. But the really cool thing is, is in a lot of cases, they use that money for, you know, for vacations, for fun stuff, for, you know, remodeling mm-hmm. their homes and things like that. Well, it's, it's a very complicated thing, and I'm so glad that they have somebody like you to help them negotiate it. I mean, I um, contacted Social Security uh, to see about signing up for benefits, and luckily I was working with somebody very knowledgeable and very kind, and they were like, well, you know, you really should apply for, um, like, widow's benefits for your deceased husband because uh, at this point in your life, that would be a larger check. And I was like, I didn't even know I could do that. I mean, my husband died 30 years ago, for God's sake. Uh, so it yeah. really is, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm telling you, up close and personal, uh, somebody like Ron, who, you know, found that extra check, um, for that man, and it, it's just the the amount of expertise that goes into making smart decisions is um, certainly beyond me. And it's you know whether or not you're smart, do you just have the time to sit there and and read and digest it all? The short answer is no. So I think that what you're I didn't realize that there was a company like yours, Ron. But man, oh man, is your service valuable? And um, I think you should pitch your service to SAG-AFTRA. We could use your two. 
Yeah. Well, if you, if you know somebody there, Joan, I'll, I'll be happy to happy to. Do <laughs> okay, that. I do. I do know some pension people there. I will. I will be happy to make that connection. And uh, thanks for coming on the radio and telling us about what you do. It. I think it's really interesting and informative. Really appreciate the opportunity, Joan. Thank you so much. Ron Whittingham is the co-chief executive officer uh, at investment executive Megan Financial. And if your union isn't working with them, you might want to look into that. We are going to take a break. We're going to be back with more politics right after this. The Rick Smith Show, live weeknights from 8 to 10 p.m. Look at what's happening. The Rick Smith Show on WCPT 820. Everyone is talking about it. Chicago's progressive talk. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT Willow Springs, is powered by ComEd. See how ComEd is preparing for a clean energy future at comed.com slash clean energy. This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. Mentioned at the start of the show today that April 4th isn't all about selecting a new alder person or a new mayor of the city of Chicago. It is also for the people of Wisconsin about selecting a Supreme Court judge, somebody who is going to be on the bench for 10 years and somebody who will determine whether that is a far right court or a more moderate court. We talked to Sarah Godlewski when she was running to in the Democratic primary. We've talked to her after the Democratic primary when she was working still to unseat Ron Johnson. And we are talking to her again. Her organization is Women Win Wisconsin. Sarah, welcome back to our radio show. Well, hello, Joan, and thank you so much for covering this most consequential election, I think, in the entire country with selecting the Supreme Court. I tried to explain briefly to our listeners what's at stake here, but why don't you give it a go? Well, so there's a few things. Um, for starters, this is uh, we elect our Supreme Court justices here in Wisconsin for 10 year terms. So you think about it, an entire decade and a lot can transpire. Um, but the other important why I kind of emphasize this is the most consequential election in Wisconsin's history in a very long time, because whoever wins this election, that majority will control the court. So right now we have a four three split. We have four conservative justices and three liberal justices. The seat that is up will then determine what majority actually rules. And here in Wisconsin, we right now are seeing how the Supreme Court is attacking, whether it's women's rights. We in Wisconsin right now have an 1849 abortion ban on the books. And, Joan, it's before women could vote, um, even before there was sliced bread. Um, but, yes, there's a lot of things that the court's seen, whether it's potentially with abortion to water rights to even um, voting rights here in the state. So just to be clear, you've got a 4-3 conservative court now, and isn't one of those four conservative justices the one who retired and whose seat is up for grabs? So what I'm saying is that it's not that after this election there'll be eight people on the court. There will still be seven. Do, or am I confused here? Yeah, yeah. No, there'll be there'll be seven. So what has happened, you're exactly right to just uh, further explain it. Uh 
conservative uh, Supreme Court justice is retiring. And so this is an open seat. And um, it currently right now, uh, the woman, the justice who is retired is a conservative. But yes, she is retiring. Now, the conservative who is on the ballot for this April 4th election is Daniel Kelly. And he was, I believe, appointed to the Wisconsin Supreme Court by your governor, then Walker. And yet when it came time to run for reelection to that seat, he lost. Tell me about Dan Kelly. So Dan Kelly is uh, a political operative in Wisconsin who has served on the Supreme Court in the past. Um, he was elect- he was appointed by Governor Walker um, back in 2016. And then when he was up for reelection um, during at the end of his term, which at that point was in 2019, he ran against um, a judge here in Wisconsin, uh, a woman running, and he lost by 10 points. But I think the one thing to really kind of talk about with Dan Kelly is he's not this, um, you know, person who uh, up kind of interprets the law, I think, really based on what is in, what, what's written. He really leans into, um, I think, his partisan views and values. You know, Dan Kelly is a guy who um, has worked for a pro-life organization. Um, he is a guy that literally worked for the Republican Party. Uh, most recently, he was actually um, mentioned in the January 6th hearing uh, in Washington, D.C., because he was involved um, in the fake electors scheme that was going on right here in Wisconsin, where Donald Trump was trying to overthrow the will of the people. And Dan Kelly was working for the Republican Party here in the state. Um, and so it's really worrisome to know that we could have this very kind of partisan person who is involved in potentially overturning the will of the people serving on the court. So there's just a lot at stake. The two candidates really couldn't be more different if if you tried uh, in this race. And yet... Uh, you know, you, you, Wisconsin is a very interesting state. It's got some very blue parts. It's got some extremely red parts. It's got a lot of purpley parts. Nothing in Wisconsin is ever, I don't think, a sure thing. Um, do you, would you say that's a fair statement? I, I mean, that's a, an absolutely fair statement, but I, I think this is exactly why it is so important that we are talking about this election. And what's at stake, but also about the candidates, you know, the candidate that is running um, kind of on the more liberal side of things is a woman named Janet Proasewicz, and she is a judge right now, a circuit judge in Milwaukee County. She grew up in southeastern Wisconsin in a working class family and graduated from the uh, University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee and then Marquette Law School. Um, and then became a, a district attorney and, or sorry, a, a prosecutor and really worked as a prosecutor um, for almost over 20 plus years before she then 
um, ran and won uh, serving as the uh, district court judge um, in Milwaukee County. So she has a very kind of a reputable, um, she's very reputable in her courtroom. She has been upholding the law and uh, would be an incredible Supreme Court justice. Do you think... You know, here in Chicago, the Chicago area in Illinois, we had uh, we'd had an, a Supreme Court race um, that was just as critical as the one you face in Wisconsin. And I f- was beating the drum about the candidates and what was at stake on a weekly and then almost a daily basis, because sometimes, you know, God love voters, but sometimes when it gets to like um, anything that's other than a big race, it's like people's eyes glaze over when it, it comes to when it comes to some of these things. And and what I tried to make sure my listeners understood was this is so important. This is probably more important to your daily life than who you vote for for Congress. I know that's a much higher profile race. You hear about it a lot. You see ads. But the people on the courts, they are the ones who really determine how you live your life. How are you guys getting this message out in Wisconsin? Well, that is exactly it, Joan. And one of the things that we are doing is my organization, Women Win Wisconsin, is hosting um, six rallies across the state to engage, motivate, and educate Wisconsinites just about the attack on rights. And right now, there are almost a few different categories when I mention rights. You know, the, the long pole in the tent that we know about is the attack on women's reproductive rights. So there's a court case that it's working its way through the state of Wisconsin, where our attorney general has sued to say that the 1849 abortion ban actually isn't relevant because the state of Wisconsin made laws around abortion after that. So, for example, in 1985, the Wisconsin state legislature said that, you know, you could have an abortion up to 24 weeks. And then they put on other parameters around abortion, like you need to wait 24 hours. Um, So what the AG is saying is that, look, like the fact that these laws exist after 1849 says that the state has recognized that this is an important healthcare practice. And so that, you know, it is likely that that court case could go to the Supreme Court to determine the future of reproductive freedom in our state. Um, Another important court case, and what we have seen most recently in Wisconsin, is democracy. Um, And one of the things that I know you've talked about on your show in the past, Joan, is how gerrymandered our state is. So even though we win statewide, like the governor and Senator Tammy Baldwin, this last election, we took only 36% of our state legislature. And so our districts, I like to talk about it, look more like letters are numbers than actual districts. And what we have seen here in Wisconsin is that we had a fair map 
um, commission, draw actually fair maps for our state. And then the legislature, which is gerrymandered, said, we don't like these maps. So they created their, you know, they drew their own maps. But when the governor and the legislature can't agree, it goes to the Supreme Court in our state to make that decision. And we saw that recently where for the first time, the Supreme Court set this new precedent that was called the least change doctrine, which basically says that, all right, whatever maps are least changed, that's what we should go with. And so we know that in the future, the Supreme Court's going to hear because we draw our maps every 10 years. Mm-hmm. Um, so these are just kind of a few um, examples. And then I think just one other final one, Joan, to share is here in Wisconsin, um, we are seeing like PFAS, these forever chemicals, these little plastics yep. that are poisoning our drinking water. And there's a case right now going through the courts that are trying to hold the corporations accountable who have put these PFAS in our drinking water. And we have seen like Dan Kelly, last time he was on the Supreme Court, he sided with big oil and said like big oil didn't need to take out any sort of environmental liability insurance to protect Wisconsinites. And so these are going back to your point, real things, whether they are abortion rights, voting rights to clean drinking water rights. We're talking to Sarah Godlewski. You heard of her when we were uh, covering the race uh, to elect a new senator there. Uh, she has created an organization called Women Win Wisconsin. We're, they're doing great work on the Supreme Court race. We're going to continue our discussion right after this. You're listening to WCPT 820, because facts matter. Now back to Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. Wisconsin Democratic powerhouse Sarah Godlewski has started an organization called Women Win Wisconsin. We've talked about some of the work that they are doing to make sure that voters understand that April 4th, when they vote for a Supreme Court justice, they are basically voting for how they are going to live their lives the next 10 years, whether they will have abortion rights, whether they will have voting rights, whether or not there is going to be continued gerrymandering. Um, Sarah, tell me more about Women Win Wisconsin. Yeah, so I started um, Women Win Wisconsin after my campaign for the U.S. Senate. And one of the reasons why I even decided to run for the U.S. Senate was I was just sick of critical issues being treated as an afterthought. Um, and abortion was one of them. You know, we had 50 years to make Roe v. Wade the law of the land, but we didn't prioritize it. And mm-hmm. things like a like affordable child care and paid family leave again, are always the first thing on the chopping block. And so kind of the focus of women when Wisconsin is to really motivate and educate voters here in the state about these issues. And we know, for example, the Supreme court has a big saying in what is at stake here in abortion. Um, so it's about voter engagement, voter outreach, but it's also to make sure that we have women at the table and whether it's helping, encouraging women to run for office to women in senior leadership positions, like running campaigns or being chief of staff 
um, in different offices. But we know that if you know, the saying goes, Joe, and as you know, if we're not at the table, we're on the menu. And so we really um, focus on helping to get more women at the table as well. What would you say of all the issues that uh, women win Wisconsin, all the issues that you're tackling, what are the ones that people either most need to know about or have the most misinformation on? I think, uh, you know, by far where we are today in the state is reproductive rights. And yes, we know that the overarching kind of critical piece of it is women here in the state of Wisconsin are treated like secondhand citizens because we are not able to make our own health care decisions. But I think one of the things in traveling the state and talking to people is the effect it has had, for example, with healthcare workers and being able to recruit and retain OBGYN or family practitioners. Um, a lot of counties in the state of Wisconsin actually do not have even an OBGYN. And these laws now in Wisconsin are making it even more difficult. And so uh, if you don't have the proper health care, there's lives at risk, but there's also this economic factor. Businesses don't want to come here because it's hard to recruit women and families to work. Mm. And so I think that there's also um, these almost secondary effects that uh, folks aren't aware of, whether it's recruiting and getting doctors to come to our state to trying to grow economically when we have a faster aging population and trying to get young people to come. You know, well, in every state, we have the range of voters from the 18-year-olds to the 78-year-olds. Not every state has quite the rural-urban split that um, you see in Wisconsin. I'd like you to tell me that I'm oversimplifying when I say that it's like rural, red, urban, blue in Wisconsin. Is that fair, or or, or do you find that to be untrue? I would say I think what we have seen over the past few, few years, there has been this kind of urban-rural divide, uh, red versus blue. But I do think that we are at a real turning point. Um, you know, I've been talking to voters in rural Wisconsin, and um, I was actually sharing stories with a friend of mine, and she mentioned, and I agreed, she was at a small town in western Wisconsin. She knocked on a guy's door. He was in his 80s. And um, she wanted to talk to him about what's at stake this election. And uh, reproductive rights came up and she thought he was going to you know, threaten her and push her off his porch. And his response is, it's gone too far. Like, this is this is just an overreach. And he's like, I'm voting for Janet because I'm just enough is enough. And I think we are seeing that more and more, whether it's fighting for clean water with farmers to what we are seeing is wanting an equal playing field when it comes to voting and access to the ballot. Uh, That affects rural voters, too, Uh, their ability to actually mail in their ballot. Mm -hmm. I do think that we have an opportunity um, that to really kind of find this common ground, um, because these are issues that all Wisconsinites care about. 
Well, you know, what he said is a reflection of the way the majority of the country feels. I mean, the majority of this country has always supported abortion rights. And yet we get these. Uh, it seems to me that the only people who can win a Republican primary these days are the hardest, farthest, rightest human beings on the planet who are just so out of step with the rest of the country. It is it is just staggering to me. I mean, I feel like in a lot of places we are moving toward where we have um, a country that's ruled by the minority rather than the majority because the minority was able to change who can vote, when they can vote, where they can vote, um, and redraw the lines so that it's really hard um, to defeat a Republican. It seems that instead of trying to meet the electorate where they are, they've decided it's easier to change the rules of how you elect people into office. It seems just so out of whack to me. Yeah, and Joan, it's, I, I mean, you're almost paraphrasing a conversation I had with an independent voter right here in Wisconsin. And what he was sharing is he was so frustrated because he's like, I don't, um, like how Republicans are trying to change the rules of the game to win. And it should be an equal playing field. And we have seen time and time again, whether it's even making maps more gerrymandered than they were before to, you know, we have seen them take away drop boxes for ballots and saying that, you know, voters can't actually drop off their ballots at ballot boxes um, or, making mail-in voting even harder. Um, And so I do think Wisconsinites are noticing that. And in our state, when only a few thousand votes is what wins, it's those few thousand voters that are saying, you know, enough is enough because only the extreme, these mega Republicans are the ones that are kind of winning these gerrymandered districts. And, um, And it's just not, it's not a majority. Nowhere near. Does do you think the average Wisconsinite understood how much Illinois Uline family money poured into that Senate race? Do you think and and maybe they did know and maybe they just didn't care. But to me, if outside influences are funding a candidate, that would that would make me personally uncomfortable. Did the people of Wisconsin understand that the U-lines were pouring millions into that race? Did they not know? Did they not care? What do you think? Well, you couldn't miss it, Joan, because a commercial is on every single minute of every day. And even if you don't watch TV, if you turn on any sort of social media, you're seeing this just incredible influx um, of commercials. And I I do think Wisconsinites wonder, like, A, where is all this money coming from? But, you know, at the same time, when so many, when folks are, you know, trying to pay for their kids, I don't know, like, let's just say sports equipment, or they're trying to make sure that they're able to make the, pay their bills and they're seeing literally millions of dollars be poured into this, these races. It's just, it's obscene. Um, but I do think the fact that we have seen directly Dan Kelly and something he bragged about, Joan, is that he'll have special interest money to make sure he wins. 
he was in a competitive primary and what he would brag about is I've got all of the, you know, rich people in my corner and they're going to make sure my campaign is fully funded. Um, and just today, a big mega Republican PAC dropped over $3 million into this race. Um, and so it is, it is, it is really, uh, it's really going to be a fight. Do you think money is going to be the determining factor? And the reason I ask that is because obviously money, money buys commercials. And, uh, for those people who aren't, you know, government geeks, maybe like you and me, you know, maybe the only thing they pay attention to are the television commercials. How, how much does money matter? I mean, we know that money is helpful in getting the message out, but money doesn't overpower people. And at the end of the day, I think people power is what wins elections here in Wisconsin. It's one of the reasons why we are doing six rallies across the state. And these aren't just rallies, of course, in Madison and Milwaukee to make sure we get out the vote. It's rallies in western Wisconsin, in La Crosse and Eau Claire, and in northeastern Wisconsin, like Appleton and, and Green Bay. Because when we go there, meet people where they are, and have these conversations, um, and do it in a way that's motivating, energizing, and encouraging, people turn out. And we saw that even just, Joan, most recently, we had our primary here in the state of Wisconsin, which usually you have a very low turnout. No one really votes in primaries, especially in the spring. And we had a record-breaking almost a million people, which was more than we had for the governor's race uh, this past August. So I think people are being tuned in. They're listening um, and, you know, talking about it at the kitchen table. And we are trying to meet people where they are to, to spread the news about Janet and how critical this election is. Well, I wish you nothing but the best. I think Women Win Wisconsin is a great group, and um, I look forward to all of the candidates and all of the issues that you support going forward, Sarah. And I want to thank you so much for joining me today. Well, thanks for having me, John. It's always so nice to talk to you and your listeners. We are going to take a break now. We'll be back after news with more. This hour of Joan Esposito Live Local and Progressive is brought to you by Team Hochberg. If you want to buy a house or refinance a house, call 855-56-DAVID or visit 56david.com. Joan Esposito Live Local and Progressive on WCPT 820. I mentioned that earlier today, uh, one of the mayoral candidates got another endorsement, the endorsement of one of the former people who wanted to be mayor, uh, Reverend Dr. Willie Wilson is here uh, to tell us who he is endorsing and why. Uh, Dr. Wilson, thank you for being here. All right. Thanks for having us. We appreciate it. And what have you decided to do and why? Well, we endorsed Paul Valley today at um, 12 noon. It's all on the way and everything else. So that's what we did. Uh, the biggest issue uh, for myself personally and also for a lot of the people that uh, ask for the input is, is crime and not defunding the uh, not defunding the police and uh, and taxes and uh, Paul is not doing that uh, but the uh, the other candidate uh, Brandon Johnson are so 
that's a problem uh, with, with crime and high as it is. And, you know, people can't keep their home for its taxes, running businesses out of the city. And people don't shop in the city because of high taxes. Uh, that 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 was the reason why I supported Paul because he uh, he's, he's he's not he's not for that. You know, earlier today I was talking with political uh, strategist Don Rose, and uh, since neither Paul nor Brandon won any of the African American wards in the city of Chicago, Don said that. Whoever is able to garner that vote uh, will be the next mayor of the city of Chicago. Is your endorsement going to get Paul Vallis black voters? Well, I'm black. <laughs> I, I, you know, I mean, the guy mine. And, and so, uh, look, uh, I have um, a base that always been with me and my base been pretty much, uh, that's it, African-American. So um, I, I speak on behalf of myself and my base only. Mm-hmm. And, and so if anybody else wants to join the base, that's why I welcome all that too. But I only can speak for the people that, that voted for me and things of that nature myself because uh, that's how, you know, things go. And But we, we certainly don't want to be tacked out of the city. We certainly don't want to defund the police. We support the police. So, um, and that's a message that I convey to to the people that voted for me. And I think on my Facebook and my town hall meeting that we held, I think on my quarter, we had about 150 some thousand viewers came to it and things of that nature. Ball was leading by I, I think Paul probably about seventy-five to eighty percent, you know, and and so obviously they feel the same as I feel, you know, and and so let's hope that this will get them over the uh, finish line. I think it's going to do some good, you know. Mm-hmm. Do your endorsement is obviously very important. Do you also plan to actively campaign for Paul Vallis? I do all I can do to help him. Um, to get there, uh, I, I don't want a job. I, I wouldn't take a <laughs> job. You know what I'm going to do with a job? Making a hundred thousand, two hundred thousand dollars a year. I, I'm not looking for that. You know, so uh, if I didn't think for him, I would. It would be with no no pay. Mm-hmm. You know, and so uh, I, I do want to make sure that the citizens of Chicago, and I don't really care what color you are. You know, white, black, brown, and uh, Asian American. I really just don't care. Uh, I think we all citizens of Chicago, and we got to come together and 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 realize that it takes us all to work together and make things work. You know, so mm-hmm. that's why I stand, Ed, and that's why we will stand, bringing people together and not separating people. You um you garnered. Uh, I'm trying to remember something like um. Roughly just under 10, something like 8% of the vote on February 28th. Do you think all of that will, that you can get all of those supporters to go with your endorsement? Well, I think that when it, when it, when the votes get all counted, the mail in the ballot and things like that, we're going to be 
Uh, the last count I had, well, it was nine point five or six or seven. Mm-hmm. But but we still had, if I'm not mistaken, I think we still had out like sixty two thousand mail in vote. You know, mm-hmm. so we certainly don't hit that ten between ten and eleven percent, and that's been pretty much what I've been coming all along at. Uh, I, I certainly hope it helps. I, I mean, look, we we um. All we want is the best for the people. Uh, I uh, I think that uh, you, you know the way things are are now. No, nobody wants to be um, afraid to go out the house. Nobody want to get taxed. You know, nobody want. Mm, yeah, it's, it's tough for time, but people make a living right now. You know, doesn't doesn't care who you are. You know, it just it's just tough. And now. I, I do fine, but it ain't good enough just for me to do fine. But it's a citizen. You know, I probably could afford to, I, well, I can afford to do what I want to do and live where I want to live at and buy what I want to buy in Chicago without any burden on me. But it's the rest of the people. I care about the people, mm-hmm. you know. And, 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 and so I always would speak up for the people. So, so that that's kind of where I'm at. I just uh, think it, 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 unless all of to Chicago, then then that's the only way I will accept it. All of us got to make it. All of us got to push hard to help those people who may be struggling, you know? And we, we can't look at color. You know, we got to just go with the situation of, um, of we, we're all Chicago. Yeah. Well, it is so nice to talk to you. Thank you for coming on the radio station and sharing your news of the day. I look forward to uh, your next ventures, okay? Let me know what they are. All right. All right. Thank you. Thank you. We are going to take a break. We are going to be back with uh, Rex Hupke from USA Today right after this. Need a new social media account to follow for progressive politics? WCPT 820 is your best source for both progressive politics and programming. Give us a like on Facebook and a follow on both Twitter and Instagram. The family meeting. Breaking news. McRib is back. Oh, my gosh. Then they got the nerve to say, get it while it's last. They always say that. (laughs) They always say that. And I never get it. it. I don't know if people are even buying it. The dude who created McRib must have had dirty pictures on somebody because they should have fired his or her ass a long time ago. Say, listen, I want this in the menu and I want my cut. (laughs) Right. Because I saw what you did with your nasty vibe. The family meeting. Sundays, 4 to 6 p.m. is sponsored by Identity Guard. Protect your identity for as little as $6 per month. Visit lookaftermyid.com. Chicago's Progressive Talk, WCPT 820, where facts matter. This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. Whenever I introduce Rex Hupke, it is always still a challenge for me to not say Chicago Tribune columnist, but rather to say USA Today columnist and Rex uh, joins us now. Rex, have you been doing this job for what, two years now? Uh, one, actually. It's only been a year. Just one. Well, then no wonder yeah. I can't adjust. You know, yeah. it takes me it takes me at least two years to uh, to think in new ways. I, I don't have many neural pathways available to me, so I have to repurpose uh, some for new information, which means I have to decide what to forget. And uh, and so give me a little bit of time and I will make sure to introduce you 
always properly. Okay. I think it, I think it's it's just the big thoughts going on in your head. That's there's not room. For <laughs> you think it's the, you think I it's ah uh, yeah yeah oh there are there are lots of there are lots of big thoughts going on in my head. Um, many of them um, are whether or not I went wrong by not becoming an HVAC uh, installer earlier in life, and you know maybe my life would have been a little bit. Uh, more placid going forward, but that's a discussion for another time. So what do you think about uh, Tucker Carlson and all of his lies? Do you think the people who need to care will care? That's my problem. You know, are we getting this information about the fact that he was saying that, you know, he hated Donald Trump behind the scenes while he was promoting Donald Trump on the air? Do the people who need to know this, how are we going to get them that information? Yeah, that's the tricky part because they don't listen to much outside of uh, that particular bubble. I think the the the, the only chance uh, of that uh, sort of puncturing the membrane of of this uh, enclosed news loop that they all exist in is uh, yeah, is if, for example, Trump finally responds to Tucker Carlson saying that he hates him with a passion. Uh, you know, and, and if, say, Trump goes after Tucker Carlson, which I don't expect him to necessarily, but if he was to, then you've, then you've got some uh, some static within the bubble. So I think that's really the key. I mean, me talking about it, you talking about it, whoever, maybe some people on the sort of on the some of the more uh, people who haven't completely uh, drank Kool-Aid, so to speak, um, might see it and be a little disgusted and frustrated that they've been lied to but uh most people will will not hear about it and or or what they hear they will not believe because it's not coming from fox news (laughs) well you know you you touched on a on on one of the parts of this that i find surprising the fact that i mean what we know about donald trump he loves a good fight he loves to get down and dirty with somebody and call names and make it a big deal. And yet, unless I missed it, Rex, he has been shockingly quiet um, when faced with the facts that Sean Hannity, Laura Ingram, Tucker Carlson, behind the scenes, they were saying terrible, terrible things about him. Why do you think he hasn't reacted? Well, uh, and, and actually, he's praised Tucker Carlson, uh, and, and because it's to his benefit to to Tucker Carlson is, is is trying to recast the narrative of January 6th, and it, obviously it's to Trump's advantage if he can do that. So he's been like, "Oh, Tucker, Tucker got the scoop of the century," blah blah blah, all this nonsense. Um, so you know, I mean, Trump is a it, as you said, I mean, he'll strike back at anybody that comes at him. But it also has to be in his best interest to do that. And so I think it's a matter of when uh, it reaches the point where <laughs> it, it is no longer in his best interest to uh, support Tucker and what he's saying. Because uh, right now, if he goes after him, he is undercutting the stuff Tucker's saying that theoretically helps him. Uh, you know, the stuff about downplaying January 6th and making it sound like they were innocent sightseers and blah, blah, blah. So, uh, you know, he's in a little bit of a bind there. I mean, I think at the end of the day, Trump is an opportunist um, and, and he always, always, always will will do or say whatever uh, will benefit him, either financially or, or, you know, to get out of trouble or reputation wise or whatever. So I, I think it's going to 
it, it'll have to reach a, you know, if it reaches a point of diminishing returns or if Tucker just sort of starts to backtrack from some of this nonsense that he's been spouting, then I could see Trump launching on him possibly. But, but right now I don't, I don't think he's going to. And I think he's just going to assume that, you know, people think Dominion Voting Services is lying or making stuff. You know, they just it doesn't take uh, a great deal to get people to uh, not believe or not trust information right now, especially people who exist in the kind of right wing media ecosystem. They 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 are there because they don't want to believe in things that are actually happening around them. So uh, if there's something that, that, that forces them to to doubt or forces them to feel like they might be wrong about something or one of the people they sort of idolize is, is not what they thought they were, uh, then they tend to, it's hard to get them to cross that Rubicon. One of the things that I think is fascinating about this whole saga is that I feel for the first time ever that the curtain has been pulled back a little bit. I mean, I just assumed that uh, Sean Hannity, Tucker Carlson, Laura Ingram were doing what they were doing almost at the express order of Rupert Murdoch. And now you hear these comments that he made to the Fox News chief about, you know, people are still slinging mud at us. You know, what's sort of like what's going on? And, um, you know, that they're that perhaps Sean Hannity and Laura are going too far. Well, if you if you own the network and you think two of your most prominent anchors are going too far, I I don't know about you, but I would convey that information whether you do it through uh the the ceo down to the executive producers or what but if you really think i mean whenever i worked in television if i was doing something that the general manager didn't like i i heard about it you know you did this why didn't you do that um and and yet this there's this sort of like sort of like surprise on rupert's part uh, are they, they're going too far. Well, if they are, why? Because they think that's what you want. And then I've been reading reports that if this, if this story doesn't die down, if this continues to be a thing, which, uh, so far I think is blowing up in a way that is very pleasing to me. And it's lasting a lot longer than I, than I thought it would. But, but he's, there, there's speculation. Who will Rupert throw under the bus? Who will he fire? Will it be his CEO? Will it be one of his anchors so that he can say, look, a uh, bad actor. Oh, look at us. You know, um, we're better now. Do you think there's realistically any possibility that anybody's going to lose their job over this? Oh, boy, that's a good question. Uh, you know, because they, they could just as easily circle the, you know, circle the wagons up and just say, well, you know, no, and just deny everything and, and keep fighting and, and not, you know, just pretend it never happened, basically. Uh, well, I think and, that's and their first plan. But themselves. like today yeah. on the I, I can't remember if this was in the in the Senate or in I think it was in the House of Representatives. One, one of the uh, one of the speakers uh, started reading who was started reading Tucker Carlson's texts yeah. on the on the floor of the House of Representatives. It was by uh, Representative Jim McGovern. So um, unlike most of the stories that I think should be huge and seem to die after one day, this one seems to be sticking around. 
Yeah, well, and, and some of it's because the the, the information is coming out <clears throat> kind of in dribs and drabs uh, from the from the defamation lawsuit. The court filings are uh, with all of this material, and then you know they're coming out in little waves. It seems like so. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, it's a. I mean, this is a. I think what ha- what happens is that many of us uh, have long recognized Fox News to be highly dishonest. I have never really believed that most of these uh, figures in Fox News actually believe half the stuff they're going on about it. It's all for money and showmanship and all that sort of stuff. And I think a lot of people have sort of just taken that at face value. If you're not inside the Fox News bubble, uh, not even if you're just a liberal. I mean, there's conservatives who who don't, you know, just rely mm-hmm. solely on Fox. Uh, uh, you know, I think you sort of have, we've taken that with a grain of salt almost. It's like, okay, well, there's that thing. And that's a, you know, factory of nonsense, but whatever. And we just do our best to, to, to stay informed <laughs> other ways. So, so because of that, I think that this is telling us, what we already know in a lot of ways. And so I don't know if, uh, I mean, but now we have it's proof. Huge, it's, right. It's a huge story. I would argue this is in terms of the media at large, this is probably one of the biggest stories of all time, uh, you know, or at least, well, yeah, one of the biggest stories. Well, I mean, this is a huge deal what mm. is being uncovered here, but the question is, does it, you know, what is the impact? Because for part of the country, they're going to ignore it because they don't want to hear it because they love Fox News. And another part of the country already knows Fox News is dishonest. So this is reaffirming what we all suspected for so long. Uh, I don't know. It's tough. I mean, you know, it's it, it's trying to find out or sorry, trying to tease out, uh, you know, how the impact, how long that impact will go on. And, 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 and more importantly, what will be the Will there be consequences? Will something happen here that will get Fox News to do things differently, to admit to anything, et cetera? And it's just tough. I mean, you are really talking about a uh, you know a swath of the population that is just straight up brainwashed at this point, and you know this stuff is gospel to them. You know, Hillary and email servers and charisma mm-hmm. and Hunter Biden and you know these are. You're not going to knock these things down. Uh, I've already had people emailing me about the Tucker Carlson footage, like him showing him showing Josh Howley running and then showing additional footage that shows there were other lawmakers running prior to him running as if that means anything, right? As if it means anything. It's just, they're all still running. I was like, what is the point here? But they're latching on to that. So, you know, dishonest media, dishonest January 6th committee, blah, 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 blah. So it's tough, man. It's tough to fight, uh, 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 you know, information warfare when when one side has been so thoroughly shellacked with this stuff for so long. So I, I am I share your uh, pleasure at seeing the fact that the story is it is seems to have legs and, and I hope it continues to. Um you know, if Dominion winds up winning or if Fox settles, uh, it continues to be a, a huge story. And but I don't, I just don't know what I don't know what you know. I mean, Rupert Murdoch could come out and say, you know what, we've been lying to you this whole time. This is all a scam. We just wanted your money. You know, here's he did here's, say that. Well, yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> but you know, if he aggress, you know, he came out and very clearly as part of a settlement, for example, cop to the whole scam. 
Well, that's what I'm hoping and praying, whether this thing goes to court or whether there's a settlement that as part of the agreement, Dominion not only gets a gazillion dollars from Fox, but they require that certain personalities and maybe Rupert have to make public statements of apology admitting wrongdoing. That's what I'm waiting for, baby. Yeah, well, I would like to see that, too. Of course, I just don't know if it would make a difference, though, because people who who are in this uh, arena uh, who who have been soaked so much for so long in this kind of fever swamp, they'll just find a way to excuse it. They'll find a way to, oh, well, they were, you know, it was the, you know, it was like big tech forcing them to blah, 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 whatever. That's not what they really mean. So, I don't know, man. It's it's hard. I mean, I, I have said for a long time that, that the majority of people who, who have gone down the Fox News rabbit hole, uh, you know, our relatives, loved ones, you know, people who we have literally kind of lost because of this, uh, they're gone. I, I don't believe those people come back because I just it is the the, the uh, mental uh, uh, strength needed to acknowledge that you've been had is is uh, that's a lot it's a lot for anybody and so i i think most of these people and i feel bad saying it and i know i have people in my life who i've lost uh but i i do not expect that they will be returning no matter what happens i think they're just gone and and it sucks but that's what this place has done to people yeah i'm talking to usa today columnist rex hupke we're going to take a break and be back with more right after this Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT Willow Springs, is powered by ComEd. See how ComEd is preparing for a clean energy future at comed.com slash clean energy. Now back to Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. I'm joined by Rex Hupke, USA Today columnist. We were just talking about the insanity uh, at Fox News and the fact that they have been caught lying to us. I'm shocked, shocked, I tell you. Um, but, you know, they've been in the lying business for a long time. Do you think that because, especially just before and during Trump's campaign and his tenure in the White House and, and lying became um, sort of part of the fabric of political life rather than something that was called out, I think that tolerance of lying and what we've gotten on a steady basis from the anchors at Fox, that's what created George Santos and Andy Ogles. For those of you who don't recognize the names, George Santos is a congressman from New York who basically doesn't exist in real life. There's only just made-up stuff, what his name is. He's got lots of different names. He's got... Where he went to school was a lie. His, you know, what his mother died of, when she died was, I mean, everything, his real, everything was a lie about this guy. And then we discover that he is not alone. Andy Ogles, the congressperson, for, the Republican congressperson from Tennessee said, Oh gosh, I'm really sorry. <clears throat> I just made some mistakes. I forgot. <laughs> I forgot what I majored in in college. Uh, um, and I, um, made a couple other misstatements. 
uh, you know, yeah, maybe I'm not really an economist. Maybe I never really did serve in law enforcement, but I was a volunteer for a couple of years before they purged me from the volunteer sheriff program because they said I didn't meet their standards. I mean, is this what we're going to be facing from now on, Rex? You know, if somebody's running for office, forget about their positions and their policies. You have to find out first whether or not they're just lying to us. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I think it's there's a there's a lot that 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 happened that allowed someone like Santos uh, and others to to get to where they are. Uh, the tolerance for lying is one thing, which certainly uh, Fox News has sort of been laying the groundwork for that for a long time and then of course trump really came along and you know that's his his masterwork is <laughs> kidding doubling our senses to lying almost um but you know uh, also things got missed by by journalists uh, with santos although although well by, maybe i shouldn't say by there were some local journalists uh, in the New York area who, who had uh, raised red flags about this, but it didn't bubble up uh, any further than this sort of smaller publication, and it should have. So I think hopefully um, the vetting, at least by local uh, journalists and all the way up to national you know, reporters and whatnot, is, is going to improve because – you know, fool me once, uh, that kind of thing. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I mean, this is a, the fact that Santos is still a lawmaker is absolutely extraordinary. I mean, because you're right, he, he has fabricated vir- virtually everything. I mean, it's almost, if you were, if you were coming up with a, a satirical uh, political candidate who, who was lying a lot, you would not you, you know, it would be too absurd to come up with someone like him. I mean, it's absolutely yes. wouldn't, be, wouldn't be believable enough. So uh, the fact that Kevin McCarthy is just overlooking all this because he desperately needs Santos's vote, because uh, Santos, is in, he's in a district where a Democrat could easily replace him if he was to be booted or removed somehow. Um, it's shocking, but it's, it should be shocking. Uh, but But I think... And I do think this is a difference here. I, you know, I, I, I'm willing to uh, acknowledge a decent amount of, of, you know, kind of both sides stuff when it comes to certain issues. But the I, Democrats we would not be tolerating this. I mean, we've seen this time and again when it comes to various, you know, sex scandals, Me Too type issues and whatnot, where, you know, Democrats will run people out of office quick when there are, are real problems like this. Um the Republicans are not doing that, though. But, and I think, it, again, it's because, look, I mean, we know how much Trump lied. That is not opinion. That is a verifiable fact. That guy lied like a, you know, a, uh-huh. like a sprinkler, you know, <laughs> just ridiculous. And they don't care. You know, they, they nobody in the Republican Party ever tried to hold him accountable for his lies or, or ask him to maybe kind of dial down the lying a bit. Um and and the same with Santos. I mean, nobody, they're, they're not nobody. There have been a couple. Mitt Romney is made clear that he's disgusted with him, but nobody really in the House, at least to speak of, uh, has been saying in much or certainly not enough about the fact that a complete fabulist is is in a position of you know not tremendous power. I mean, he's a freshman, con- you know, congressman, whatever, but. Well, Kevin McCarthy can't he can't afford 
to do anything to, you know, Kevin McCarthy is existing as the House Speaker on a knife's edge. Kevin and, and George Santos has made it clear that whatever Kevin McCarthy wants, whatever he wants him to vote for or against, he's right there for him. So what's the motivation for Kevin? Mc- oh, the fact that he doesn't really uh, that he doesn't really exist as the way he has presented himself. The fact that his whole life is a lie um, that would ordinarily be disqualifying. But, hey, he's a vote. Kevin McCarthy can count on. And Kevin McCarthy isn't going to do a darn thing to get rid of him. Yeah, he is a warm body, and that's all they need. So mm-hmm. exactly, uh, you know, and, and yeah, so so yeah, I think the more people do this kind of thing and get away with it, the more likely it is that others are going to follow suit. I mean, you don't have Donald Trump, and I don't think you have George Santos. I don't think people. I don't think a person would have the. It's not courage. Uh, <laughs> the audacity, maybe. <laughs> the utter shamelessness. Yeah, yeah. And think you could get away. Not only think you could get away with it, but just continue. I mean, imagine being caught, right? Knowing that everybody knows that you just made all this stuff up and not leaving. <laughs> it's really horrible. Like, yeah. And that's the thing. yeah. Same with same with Trump. Everybody knew he was lying. There was no question about it. It was which is crazy. why. I mean, we know Kevin McCarthy has a vested interest in keeping him there. He's a warm body. He's a vote. But, you know, there's this supposed, uh, maybe you heard about this, Rex, this Main Street committee, this Main Street coalition of the moderate Republicans, you know, the ones who want to reclaim the party um, that supposedly are a big part of what's going on in Congress. I'm sorry. Where are their voices they're supposed to be the the Republican Party of old trying to reassert itself. And not one of them has come out and said, this guy doesn't belong here. I'm sorry. This is where this is where I also get mad when I read um, like, oh, you know, Trump's time is over. Everybody's moving past Trump. He doesn't have any donors anymore. But when push comes to shove, they fall into line and nobody wants to be the one to stick their neck out and say any of it out loud. They're just cowards. Yeah. Well, and they've created a monster and that's the the whole, that's what they're going to really see. I think uh, when, you know, you get Ron DeSantis declaring his presumed presidential candidacy and, and you have him taking on Trump, they, they have created a monster where it's, how do they criticize January? How do they go after what happened on January 6th without angering Trump and his, mm-hmm. you know, the, the decent sized swath of the Republican Party that he carries with him? Uh, you know, what does Ron DeSantis do? And I mean, what does anybody running for office do? What in the same, just what you're talking about with these moderate Republicans, like, yeah, you're absolutely right. If they meant anything, they'd be going after someone like Santos. They would be condemning Trump's attempt to run again. They would be doing all kinds of things to try to kind of normalize their party and get it to focus on things that people actually care about, because that's the other fatal flaw that they have right now is that they have thrown so much red meat at their base. Mm-hmm. That their base cares only about red meat. And when the rest of the country cares about a lot of other things, including, you know, Inflation, the environment, the cost of food, you know, uh, poverty, like, yeah. you know, 
healthcare. They care about all these things and all the, the base wants to focus on or, you know, books about gay penguins or, what you know, just these ridiculous yeah. culture war things that, that just aren't going to fly. I mean, they really aren't. And, and I think the um, I think the re- Republicans are are already in a lot of trouble. I think once the presidential primary gets going and Trump starts just doing his barbarian thing, uh, they're going to be in real trouble. And uh, along those lines, we're going to take a break, but along those lines about who's in the uh, primary, I think I think the biggest negative right now for Nikki Haley is the fact that Trump is ignoring her. He doesn't even think she's enough of a viable candidate to go after. That must really um, that must really be disappointing for Nikki. Rick's Hupke and I are going to be right back after we take a quick break. Podcasts of Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, are available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud. Just search WCPT 820. Because facts matter. You're listening to WCPT 820. Don't turn that dial. A dangerous mistake to make. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, returns right now on WCPT 820. And I am joined by USA Today columnist Rex Hupke. Uh, Rex, I have a question for you. You know, I generally don't play sound bites from Tucker Carlson. I try, for the most part, not to play sound bites from Donald Trump. And, you know, sometimes it's really tempting because, you know, like Kimberly Guilfoyle, you know, her from the best is yet to come. Um, she spoke at CPAC and, um, you know, sometimes you think to yourself, oh my God, this is just so outrageous. I should clip this up and play it. But then I think to myself, the Republican party is shrinking. It's turning into this kernel of, uh, far right, hard right, uh, folks. And I, I don't want to give them any more oxygen. I don't. I'm, I mean, I'm glad that there are people who, like, especially on social media, like I noticed that you uh, reposted uh, Will Bunch uh, on the Donald Trump speech at CPAC. I listened to some of it, and I just, I couldn't even finish it. It just makes me, it makes me so, so sick. How do you wrestle with Stuff like this that people should know about and maybe as a columnist you want to comment on versus the idea of amplifying some of the nuttiness. Uh, I, you know, that's such a, uh, that's a great question. And it's, it's an issue where there are very, very different opinions. Uh, and my opinion personally, and this has been true since, uh, since Trump got, really got in and started uh, making things horrible uh, <laughs> uh, is I'm is I'm going to shine a light on it because I think I think that okay so most people don't live thankfully for them they don't live in the sort of with their face in the in the fire hose of of news and information that I exist in through just my job and and social media and whatnot and so a lot of people don't realize how completely bonkers. Some of this stuff is a lot of people don't realize exactly how messed up some of these 
things that are happening are. And that is not their fault. They don't realize it because their job does not require them to be following mm-hmm. stuff. They're busy people. They have families. They're doing the important things in life. And I would not call, you know, re- refreshing Twitter, you know, however many times a day to be one of the more important things in life for, for the average human being. So I think it's important to highlight these things so that people, not because I think I'm going to reach a Trump supporter and make them realize the hypocrisy of something. I don't care. Like I said before, I, those, I do not consider hardcore Trump supporters, hardcore MAGA people, uh, hard, even hardcore, you know, people who really just are all in on Fox news all the time. Uh, I don't consider them to be reachable. Frankly, I would love to be able to reach them, but I don't think that that's doable. So what I write, what I choose to shine a light on, uh, is targeting, people who maybe don't realize like, Oh wow, DeSantis is really doing this. Oh my God. I wrote something a week or so ago looking at, you know, a lot of the claims of, of great success that DeSantis is spouting and how they don't actually add up to anything that's really happened. You know, he, a lot of like the thing with Disney, what he barked about how they took over, he made it sound like they took over Disney and what actually happened down there was, was far more, uh, far smaller than, than and less significant than, than anything he was crowing about. So, uh, you know, I, that's what I want to do. I want to show people, mm-hmm. Hey, the, you know, Hey, this is happening. And if that means I'm amplifying some, you know, obnoxious person, hateful person's message. Well, okay. I, cause, cause look, I mean, they're getting their message out no matter what. I mean, there is no, <laughs> uh, the idea that, and I get this all the time on Twitter, I'll share something, and people from like Trump or something like that. And people will say, stop amplifying it. And I'm like, look, man, he, he's, his message is getting amplified plenty. We're not going to, you can't put a cork on that. So I'd rather say, let's blast it out there. Let everybody see exactly how stupid it is. Because I think we saw, especially in the midterms, that people have finally, finally are, are, are finding this stuff uh, bad. <laughs> you know, they're, they're people People in the midterms were put off by uh, election denialism, by mm-hmm. you know, Trump's nonsense. You know, uh, you know, hardcore Trump backers did not do well at all. So, so they are getting the idea of just how bad this is, and especially the younger uh, voters. Uh, they are, in particular, are turned off, and and they're and they're seeing this stuff. So, I, I say, let's, you know. Let's let it ride, you know, get it out there. Let you know, a little earlier today, I was talking with Sarah Godlewski from Wisconsin. She started Women Win Wisconsin. And, you know, Wisconsin's a great example of some of the um, some of the craziness. And what amazes me is um, the Republican Party, for the most part, as it exists now, is so out of step with the majority of the country and. You know, maybe they didn't care when, you know, they felt they could ramp up abortion hate and get victories anyway, but they saw what happened in the midterms. They are Mm -hmm. these far right candidates that they are running are losing. How are they? These aren't the people behind the scenes aren't stupid people. At what point do they sit around the table and look at each other and go, guys, this isn't working. You know, we're not winning, 
you know, um, we're not winning these seats we should be winning. Maybe we should do something different. I don't understand because they're on a path to continue to lose. And you would think that they would want to win. So explain that mental thinking to me. I, I, it goes back to the the monster they've created. They, they can't escape. They're in a they're in a, 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 a it's sort of a, a they're in a cycle now where where I don't think they can break out. Uh, they have they have made they have promised people they have they have uh, uh, brainwashed people on the idea that you know Biden will be in prison, Hunter Biden will be in prison. All of these things are happening. This is tyranny. Uh, you know, uh, there are books that are going to, you know, m- make your kids change their gender or whatever. Just all of this nonsense that they've hyped people up on. And now they can't walk away from that. They can't sudden you can't suddenly become rational when you have basically taught the brunt of your base to be irrational. So that's where they're at right now. They're, they are in a, a destructive cycle that is sort of spiraling farther and farther away from the mainstream of what people in this country actually think about and care about. We just had uh, USA Today to, uh, had a, a poll come out um, today uh, with Ipsos, and I thought it was fascinating. It's about uh, woke, the term woke and what people think about it, what they think it means. And 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 it is it shows the Republicans are so far off base. I mean, woke is like all that DeSantis is. It's like it's like the way Rudy Giuliani used to say 9-11. DeSantis says woke every other word. And that's he built. That's his whole thing. And according to this poll, and of course, it's one poll, whatever. But first of all, most people define it as being, you know, conscious of injustices in the world and wanting to you know, rectify those and make life fair for people. I'm paraphrasing, but, you know, it's a, a reasonable, basically, be nice. You know, that's that's how most people see it, by, by a, like a significant majority. And again, a majority does not view it as a bad thing. So uh, that's just one example of all the ways that the right is just leaning into stuff that's going to alienate them from, uh, certainly from any even remotely liberal voter, but also from a lot of independents as well, which are key. I mean, you know, the the elections from here on out, or, or for a while now at least, are, are always going to be a pretty, you're walking a pretty narrow line. And it doesn't take much, you know, to swing uh, towards, you know, one party or the other. And, and if, if you um, if you just keep on with this crusade that is, you know, going after transgender kids and, you know, stripping away rights from people and, and, and just this kind of real cruel stuff. And it is cruel. I mean, most of the, you know, it's, you can't frame most of these policies as empathetic or anything. They are very much targeted to a straight, white, often male <laughs> worldview. And, and uh, it's just not flying. I mean, you know, younger voters who are increasingly... We're, you know, we're getting more and more people who are voting age. Uh, and by the time the presidential election comes around, it'll be another big chunk of people uh, who are able to vote. You know, this, this this is baffling to them. They're like, what are you talking about? Like, what is this? You know, why do you not like transgender people? What do you care? You know, it's, it's none of the exactly. It's like a different language. And so, yeah, I think they're backing themselves. They have backed themselves into a corner. And I don't honestly see a way out. Uh 
without sort of trying to build up a almost a new party. Do you see any scenario where Donald Trump is elected the next president? Oh, sure. Yeah, I mean, it, that could happen. I don't think it's very likely, but uh, I absolutely think he can win the pr- the primary and become the nominee. And I expect if he becomes the nominee that a vast majority of Republicans will fall in line behind him because that's what they have done. Um, so, yeah, if he's the nominee, look, I mean, again, it, he, 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 going, you know, you go back to the 2020 election and that was tight. I mean, Biden, I mean, you know, Biden won by a decent amount, but that was not overwhelming. And, uh, you know, it, it, things can can change. Now, I, I I don't think it's likely that I think Trump would almost surely lose. But there's just so many what ifs between now and then, including Biden. We still don't you know, Biden, I think, is going to run again. But, you know, all kinds of things can happen with him. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a bit crazy. But but I do think that right now. I, I, I think Trump is going to just he's going to rip Biden or uh, DeSantis's you know head off. I mean, he's just like he DeSantis has no earthly chance against Trump because uh, he he just can't fight that. And and uh, Trump is going to just disembowel him. I think with his <laughs> nicknames and and you know so uh, so I think Trump stands a very good chance of being the nominee. And I you know I don't think anybody should comfortably rest on the idea that he would for sure lose i think you're i think you're exactly right um and i think it's going to be oh it's going to be uh interesting wild uh unpleasant i don't know all of the above rex hupke thank you for being here love talking to you it is always a pleasure my friend um you're you're wonderful thank you why thank you i love a man who thinks i'm wonderful (laughs) I need more of that in my life. Um, sorry, I'm losing my mind. Uh, driving at home with Patty Vasquez is next. I will see you tomorrow at 2 o'clock. Stay safe, my friends. I will see you then. Good night. <laughs>